Our reading this morning is written by Mason Bolton, and it comes from his collection called To Wake, To Rise, Meditations on Justice and Resilience. Benediction for the Heavy Heart. Good morning. I miss your good. Because a plane, because a truck, because a gun, because a cop, because a government, because a people suffering, because too many people suffering, because war, because famine, because some mornings it is so hard to rise, to wake, to be yourself. There is a pause here. There is a deliberate cessation. I want a cessation to the noise in my head, to the ache in the collective heart of this world. When I was young, this seemed possible. I want your mornings good, your evenings good, all the late nights and sunrises and afternoons and moments pressed against the ticking glass of your life good. Breathe for yourself, for each other. Let us breathe in when others cannot, when we can do nothing else. Let us stretch ourselves open to embrace our friends, extend our bodies outward to anyone willing to meet us, and even those we think may not be willing. Let us hold each other for this moment, for this blink of human existence. So I admit to a certain amount of basking in the glory this week. It was a busy week, so I couldn't set aside a specific time for reflection or gratitude like I had the week before my ordination. But there were still many opportunities to bask, to revel in the love of that ceremony and my gratitude for this call. People in the ministry at Chaplains on the Way approached me on the street this week, usually with the bear hug first, saying, Reverend Rebecca, that sounds so good. We're so proud of you. Those who actually made it to the ordination has had smiles from ear to ear as they spoke of how beautiful it was. The flowers, the food, the drummers, and the multitude of people in the pews where they were welcome. They talked about Tony, a veteran amongst us, who stood in the middle of the aisle three times to salute me and how astonished they were that no one escorted him out because everyone in the church was so happy and so filled with love and just generally nice in that church. There have been text messages, emails, cards, and calls from friends repeating all of that beauty, minus the bit about Tony. The whole week has been a painful workout for my smile muscles. And then Thursday, I got an email from Reverend Susan Frederick Gray, our newly elected president of the Unitarian Universalist Association. She called it a pastoral letter. She was ministering to ministers during these days when one tragedy seems to follow another. Dear colleagues, religious professionals and lay leaders, it started. I am thinking of you. 
See also last week, about five hours after my ordination, as you know, 58 people lost their lives and 500 were injured while they were celebrating. They were having fun at a concert when a gunman opened fire on them from his hotel room. The very thought of that action chills us to the bone. How could anyone do such a thing, especially to people they don't even know? It's been a part of our week, right? It's been on social media. We've been talking about gun legislation again. And even you kids are probably talking about it in school. And I hope you know that your parents and the adults in your life do everything they can to keep you safe and out of harm's way. The letter from Reverend Susan Frederick Gray went on to say this. You are on the front lines providing ministry and leadership to people of all ages, helping us all not lose hope in our humanity in this very inhumane time helping us all not to lose hope. Now, the president of the UUA doesn't know me. She doesn't know that I read this email as a person four days into my ordained ministry. She doesn't know that just last Sunday, I told the gathered crowd that I was mindful of the privileges and the responsibilities that come with ordained ministry, like no more snuggling into the pew and looking up like really up to Nathan and others to lead or carry the hope for me. But she probably knows, as we all do, that no one person carries the hope alone. Ordained and lay people, people of faith and people still seeking it, we need each other to carry hope when faced with this kind of what she calls inhumanity. We need the love that surrounds and binds us when we come together after something scary happens like this and as we try to make sense of it. Isn't it remarkable the extremes a week can bring us? A joyful event filled with love that swells our smile muscles and a tragic one that chills us and makes us wonder again is there evil in this world? How do we hold all of that? As Unitarian Universalists, many of us choose to take a wide girth around the word evil altogether. But if we were to look it face on, we might think of evil as a description of an action and not as the person who committed that action. Our universalist heritage tells us that we will all be reconciled to God or the ultimate goodness at the end of our lives, meaning hell is what we create here on earth and not a place we go to after life if we've been naughty or even evil when our life is over. This theology is part of what I call the good news about our faith tradition, and I love to spread it. So last Tuesday, I bought a page full of quotes about evil written by various UU ministers to our weekly discussion group at the soup kitchen in Waltham. In that hour before dinner, an ever-changing group of folks come around one table to read and discuss whatever the chaplains have brought. 
Often it's, it's Bible scripture, but it can also be a poem from Mary Oliver or Rumi, or it can be some beautiful pictures that we've cut out from National Geographic's. Chaplains on the Way is a ministry of spiritual companioning to people of all faith and people who have no faith in this moment. So around that table, we can usually have a born-again Christian, an Episcopalian, some Catholics, some former Catholics, an atheist or two, and one or two people who are just coming because they're curious and looking for company. Some of us are housed, some of us are sheltered, some of us slept outside the night before. The only rule at this table is that we respect or at least tolerate the right for each person to have a different spiritual truth. That and the smell of dinner cooking is what keeps the occasional heated conversation from bursting into flames. And this conversation on evil tested our tolerance for each other. But we passed in flying colors. I think people can definitely be evil, said Paul, a big guy who lost three decades of his life to drugs after he lost his infant son and the family he had created. I've known people who could slice you up and then step over you to go have breakfast. Listen, I've been there. But, he said, shrugging his shoulders, people can change too. I know because I have. Jimmy, another big guy, who was two years sober and just regaining connection with his children, had a different view. Evil comes from the evil one, he told us. The devil is always looking for ways to get inside us, to trip us up, to put a wedge between us and what is good. That's why it's so much easier to do bad than it is to do good. Everyone seemed to agree that doing bad was or used to be their first impulse and that doing good took all their focus. Looking around the table, my heart just filled with love for these men and women. Just the fact that they join this circle and become vulnerable to each other seems like a miracle. Many of them are living or once lived in that hell on earth I mentioned earlier. It's the one we can create for ourselves. But let's be real. For people who lack resources and money, this hell is fueled by systemic injustice that offers few opportunities to grow beyond our mistakes. Homelessness and addiction cause so much shame, but the veil is thin that separates us from each other, and mostly all I see in these folks is their goodness. So how do we avoid evil and doing bad, I asked. By making good choices, said one person. By staying around good people who are trying to make good choices, said another. Love helps, said Paul. I think feeling love makes you feel better about yourself, and that helps. I think helping others is the best way to stay positive, said Jenny, a dear older woman who takes two buses to join that circle every week. By the way, she said, almost on cue, I'm going to get another cup of coffee. Can I get anyone anything else while I'm up? So finding connection being loved and acting with love seem to help us avoid acting on the evil that might be within us. 
but it also helps us to heal the evil we witness or experience. And, and I don't take that word lightly, evil. See, in the weeks and months leading up to my ordination, even before the shooting in Las Vegas, I've been thinking about evil. I've been feeling it at work, in our community, on the street, in the form of addiction, specifically addiction that leads to death. We've had eight of those deaths this year, three in the last month. People I knew well and saw most days. I told a friend of mine who serves an indoor parish, it would be like you lost two choir members and someone on your board in three weeks to the same illness. It made me feel like that illness, that disease, addiction, is evil. My colleague, Reverend Victoria Safford, says she says, has a subjective way of deciding whether something bears the weight of that word evil. It's not the magnitude of the event, she says, nor the cold-heartedness of those involved, or even the historical impact. It's the degree of heartbreak that I feel, the shattering of my hope. Truly, my heart has been broken by these losses, and there are times when I lose hope that it will ever end. But listen, this happens too. Just when that evil disease takes away someone we cherish, that's when love shows up. At each of the eight memorial services we've held this year, there is a time for people to come up and share a story about the friend we have lost. We have this beautiful glass bowl with colorful glass stones all around it. And at the end of their story, they pick up a stone and drop it plunk into the water. And as the storytelling goes on, that mound of color grows, piecing together all the pieces of our friend and making them whole again. Each story is told in love and shows a love between two people. He was the first guy I met when I became homeless. He said, dude, you need something to eat. And he took me to Hannaford's, bought me some bologna and a loaf of bread with his food stamps. She always hugged me. Whenever she saw me, she always hugged all of us. He gave me his blanket on a cold night. He was a stand-up guy. He'd give you anything you needed. He was so funny. He could make me laugh with that smirky smile of his. I love him, and I'm going to miss him lots. This is the love that gives hope back to me. Hope that our community can survive these losses and this disease that feels evil to me at times. Together, we find connection. We feel loved, and so we act in love towards each other. So evil is a mystery to me. But fortunately, there are no absolute answers in this faith tradition, the one I was just ordained into. Here's what I do know. Whenever there is love, then whenever there is evil, then comes love. Climbing into the rubble of a bombed-out burning, 
raising its voice in political protest. Whenever there is evil, then comes love, beckoning us back to the circle, offering us acceptance and another chance. Friends, in this time of destruction where we wonder about evil inside ourselves or in another, when we are tightened by that fear, let's remember Mason's words, breathe for yourself, for each other. Let us breathe in when others cannot. Let us hold each other in this moment for this blink of human, human existence. May that be so, and amen.